side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the frustrating things to me is it seems like our country is so divided. You have Republicans not wanting to debate Democrats. You have Democrats not wanting to share a Thanksgiving table with Republicans. You have neighbors that will not even discuss the subject of politics for fear that it could lead to a shouting match. Oftentimes it seems like we can't agree on anything, including what day it is or what color the sky is. There does seem to be one area of agreement in this country, though, on the left, on the right, and in the center. The area of agreement, to me anyway, seems to be that Americans believe our political system is broken. How else do you explain the fact that we are heading towards a presidential election where at this point it looks like we're facing a Biden versus Trump rematch which nobody really seems to want. Well, I don't mean literally nobody, but a lot of folks, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and certainly among independents, would prefer this was not the situation once again. I've been saying to Republicans that can't stand Joe Biden, the problem is not Joe Biden. I've been saying to Democrats that can't stand Donald Trump, the problem is not Donald Trump. The problem is a political system and electoral structures that created folks like Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the first place. Someone who actually can put a little bit of meat on the bone, someone who has studied this issue for a long time, is the author of seven books, including 10 Steps to Repair American Democracy and Fixing Elections, The Failure of America's Winner-Take-All Politics. He's also an elections consultant for one of my favorite groups, Fair Vote, and he's been affiliated with other groups like uh, New America. America and uh, the Berlin Social Science Center. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many, many other media outlets. I am very pleased to welcome to the program for the first time, Stephen Hill. Stephen, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Frank. It's a great pleasure to join you and your listeners. Should I be calling you Dr. Hill? No, not necessary. No, okay, good, good, good. I appreciate that. Uh, before we uh, talk about elections, which is obviously my passion and political systems, which is a, I think I spend more time talking about this than anybody on the radio, probably much to the chagrin of some of our listeners and some in management. I uh, can't ignore the fact that uh, this week was Labor Day, and you've spent a lot of time looking at uh, where the labor economy is these days. You wrote a book a few years back called Raw Deal, how the Uber economy and runaway capitalism are screwing American workers. In a nutshell, Stephen, in honor of Labor Day, how exactly is the Uber economy screwing American workers? Well, it's taking um, it's turning more and more workers instead of having a regular full time job or even part time job where you can have access to health care and retirement and other benefits. Instead, it's turning more and more workers into just independent contractors where you're basically on your own, you know, the on your own society. And um, many of those contractors, 
you, you know, your, your ability to bargain with employers is not real great at that point, whether it's an Uber driver, but also working for other companies like Upwork, where you have a whole range of occupations on there. And, um, you know, you, you make it a deal with someone uh, to do a job for them for a certain amount of pay, and they can hire you from anywhere in the world. And, you know, if they don't pay you once you complete that job, there's really not a way to enforce uh, them, them paying you, let alone giving you any kind of benefits. So this is just a snapshot of the many, many ways that workers are kind of losing traction in this economy that's becoming very much a, a digital economy, Internet-based economy, because you just don't have, uh, you know, companies can hire contractors from all over the world and whose laws apply? Is it the company, the country where the company is hiring, or is it the country where the workers are hired from? Mm. These are the rules of the road that are suddenly being thrown up in the air and, and, and you know, falling down on everyone like confetti. You also, speaking of the workplace, you had an interesting piece that I read on your website about the rise of employee surveillance, not by law enforcement, but by their managers, by their bosses. We've talked about this a little bit on the program before. Why is this a problem? If uh, if employees are doing the right thing, what's so bad about their manager keeping an eye on them? Well, in, in one sense, you're making a good case for, you know, like you say, what's the problem? But the problem is many of these you know, employees are working at home now, so you're basically being watched in your own home. Um, some employers are basically saying, you know, you're never off the clock. Uh, I can just ping you on your computer or on your smartphone, and you're supposed to be available the whole time. Um, you know, they can they have ways of following you. If you take your smartphone wherever you go, they know exactly where you you, you go at all times. You know, these, this is new. This is not something we've ever had to deal with before. And is it okay? Maybe in some situations it is, but maybe it's pretty easy to abuse this and take it too far. And we're seeing a lot of examples of that now where, you know, workers are, uh, again, losing control over their own ability to work when they want, with whom they want. Uh, you have uh, employers that are uh, forcing employees to s- sign agreements saying that they won't, uh, you know, it's called a non-compete agreement. They won't uh, try to get a job with another company to make them, uh, with giving them higher pay. Uh, and, and so employers are just looking for different ways to, to try and keep control over workers and surveillance is in, is quickly becoming another one of them. Uh, We're talking with Stephen Hill, author of uh, many books, including 10 Steps to Repair American Democracy. Stephen, you you first wrote that book, if I'm not mistaken, about about 10 years ago, 10 Steps to Repair American Democracy. We've seen a lot of things happen with respect to the American political system in the last uh, decade or so. What's wrong with politics today from your perspective? And have things gotten better? worse or stayed the same since you wrote your book about a decade ago? Um, I would say things have gotten worse um, in a few ways. You know, if, if democracy means anything, it's the sense that the will of the majority uh, should prevail. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have elections if a, a minority perspective can then dominate over the majority perspective and 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 win out in policy debates and and the policies that are enacted and yet increasingly that's what we're seeing is going on in many ways um 
you know, you're seeing examples where, for example, um, the uh, a party will win 55 percent of the vote and yet they'll end up getting 45 percent of the seats or vice versa. Mm. Or you look at the United States Senate, um, the, Demo- the, the, the Republicans haven't had a majority of the popular vote for the last 25 years, and yet most of that time they've had a majority in the United States Senate, which allows them to determine committee assignments and what bills get introduced, what gets passed. Um, and, the Democratic Party actually won about 56 percent of the popular vote in the last time around, and yet it's a 50-50, it, became, it was a 50-50 tie in the Senate after that election. Yeah. And so you're just having this example where the party that wins the majority isn't necessarily getting a majority in the legislatures. And I, I think a lot of Republicans would point to the fact that at the uh, congressional level, the House level, the Republicans got about three million more votes than the Democrats did, and they only eked out a narrow majority, uh, to just underscore your point from, uh, from, from both sides of that. Yes, that's a very good point. And in and, and previous years, it was the Republicans that were getting hurt by this, where the Democrats were winning a much bigger legislative majority than they were of the popular vote. And so it, it, both parties have uh, been hurt by this over the last several decades. And I would argue the people that have been hurt the most are the individual voters, especially people like me who happen to be independent. All right. So you wrote a whole book about this, actually several, but 10 Steps to Repair American Democracy. Without going through all 10, which I'll encourage people to check out the book and uh, look through all 10, give us a few ideas of what would help. If you were just going to make a few big-ticket item reforms to the political system today, what would you change? Well, the first one, um, I, I would use, uh, I would introduce what's called ranked choice voting um, into our presidential elections and our other elections um, for state uh, legislatures and for the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and with ranked choice voting, the voter, instead of just picking one candidate or another, you get to rank first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. And if your first choice can't win, your vote goes to your your second choice. It's kind of like your runoff choice or your backup choice. And by doing this, voters would suddenly wouldn't be stuck in this lesser of two evils paradigm that we've been in for so long where you think, oh, you know, I, I really like uh, a Libertarian Party candidate or maybe a Green Party candidate or some other party. But I know they don't have a chance of winning, and so I'm stuck picking, you know, whether it's the Democrat or Republican as the lesser of two evils. And, you know, you think about the presidential election in 2000, um, in which Ralph Nader ran, and uh, Al Gore lost Florida by 537 votes out of uh, 20 million cast. Well, uh, Ralph Nader won about 90,000 votes, and if, if those voters had been allowed a second choice, I'm quite certain that Al Gore would have won that state and he would have won the presidency. So these these electoral systems do make a difference. But, you know, in 2020, it's possible the libertarian candidate um, maybe cost Donald Trump the election. So, it, again, it works both ways. It, overall, the goal here is to make sure that the will of the majority prevails. And right now, with the system that we use, it, that just doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily happen. All right, so, so that would be the first thing. Ranked choice voting, which uh, I'm a big supporter of. I've spent more time talking about it on the radio than I think anybody. A lot of our listeners remain skeptical, though, and we can get into some of the reasons as to why. What are one or two other big reforms that you think might be needed to fix American democracy? 
I would just also, uh, one follow-up on that, Frank, is just to remind your listeners that New York City does use ranked choice voting now in uh, the primaries for Democrat, Republican, and other party primaries to make sure that the winner there has a majority of the vote in the primary and also that you don't have to have a second separate election in order to figure that out. So you see, you, New York City is saving a ton of money by using ranked choice voting instead of the old uh, runoff system that you used to use. Yeah, I wish we had it for the general election. Don't get me started. Yeah, well, someday you might. Uh, you know, you try it out first, the primaries, and the next thing, uh, next thing comes after that. Uh, the, the second uh, sort of subset of that would be using what's known as proportional representation in the legislature. So here again, we mentioned about how you know fairly often you have a party that wins a certain percentage of the popular vote, but they uh, either win far fewer of the of the legislative seats, or in some cases they win far greater number of legislative seats. We've seen uh, situations where you know a party has 45 percent of the popular vote, they win 65 percent of the seats. So that's a, uh, what we call a, a votes-to-seats gap. And so with proportional representation, whatever percentage of the popular vote you win, that's the percentage of the legislative seats you win. And, and on top of that, you would, uh, if we had a system like that, you'd get more than just Democrats and Republicans getting elected. You would also get in the legislatures a Green Party, a Libertarian Party, maybe a forward party that Andrew Yang is trying to start now. You'd have different points of view, multi-party democracy. And some people think like, oh, my God, the two parties are already bad enough. Why would we want more? And actually, when you look around the world, most established democracies in the world use a method like this. And it tends to clean up politics, because right now, if you think about how it works, you know, say you're the Democrat, I'm the Republican. It's you against me, Frank. If I can, I don't, I don't have to figure out what my issues are. I just need to drive voters away from you. And then there's only one right. choice left. That's right. me. So it feeds this negative mudslinging hack attack uh, type of campaigning. Suddenly with multi-party democracy, if I'm the Republican, I can't take my voters for granted anymore and just attack you. I've got to really put out a policy and a program that attracts voters, and you've got to do the same, and the other parties do too. And, you know, it, with, with these other uh, democracies, you see um, a lot more women getting elected. Uh, you see different points of view getting elected. And so I think this would be really good for our democracy to open it up and really give voters choice. You see increased voter turnouts in these democracies because voters suddenly have more choice, more things to turn out for instead of always voting for the lesser of two evils. So that would be my second choice to introduce some uh, degree of proportional representation in our legislature. I mean, you speak in my language, and uh, I am uh, hopeful that New York City actually had that for 12 years in the 1930s, as did a number of other American cities. It would be great, I think, to see a return to it. Uh, Stephen Hill is my guest. He's an author, and uh, he also is the elections consultant or unelections consultant with Fair Vote. One of the rubs that we hear against the need for a proportional representation or even a multi-party democracy in general is that you don't necessarily need it because of the role of primary elections, that the primary elections allow the Republicans and the Democrats to serve as a big tent and uh, the different wings of the major parties that might be their own party in, say, Germany or Italy, they get a, a hearing in the primaries and and oftentimes, whomever 
emerges as the winner of these primaries has to put a coalition together that includes that faction of the party. Uh, For instance, if you look at the Republican Party, Rand Paul is certainly a very different type of Republican than, say, Mike Pence. Donald Trump, a very different type of Republican than uh, than Chris Christie. But if you're going to put together a winning coalition as the Republican nominee, presumably you need to have all those different boxes checked in terms of your your big tent. Why is that a faulty way of thinking, Stephen? Well, I think it just puts voters still into a box that voters don't shouldn't be in in a democracy, in a functioning democracy. I mean, you know, just you've talked a lot about party primaries in that example, but what about independent voters right. who aren't affiliated with any of these parties? And in fact, many states, independent parties now outnumber the number of registered Democrats or Republicans. I mean, you look at a state like Alaska, 60 percent of of registered voters in Alaska. People think of it as a highly Republican state. It's not. It's actually there are there are fewer uh, lower percentage of Republicans registered in Alaska than there are in California, because Alaska has 60 percent of its voters are registered for as as independent of one uh, variety or another. And so. You know, there's a lot of voters out there that just want more choice, and you can try and say to them all you want, well, you do have choice within the big tent of the Democrats and the Republicans, but when you see the voter turnout declining, um, as it has been for many years, and it's, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, when we vote for the U.S. House elections, in a, in a, especially in a non-presidential election year, we don't even get, you know, a majority of voters turning out to vote in those elections because everybody knows in that election, uh, you know, if you live in a Democratic district or a Democratic part of the state, there's no point for a Republican to turn out or any other minor party point of view because you don't have a chance, uh, in, a snowball's chance in, in heck for, of, of having your, your candidate have a chance of getting elected. And and so, you know, it's just uh, having these so many districts out there where they're, they're what I call orphan voters. They're voters without a home. They're a Democrat living in a Republican district, Republican in a Democratic district. And they just they just aren't satisfied with this idea like, well, I didn't elect a Republican in my district because it's heavily Democratic. But I know there's a good Republican four states away that I like. I mean, that's not representation and <laughs> not true. in any practical sense uh, uh, point of view. And so uh, I, I just think that by having proportional representation, you can still have parties that are trying to broaden their their uh, their attraction to as many voters as possible. But you have a range of of um, of, of of choices for voters and voters can look out there in the political landscape and say, yeah, I'm going to vote for this party. I'm voting for a party instead of what voters do now. They vote against a party or against a candidate. And you've alluded to a couple of uh, examples internationally that uh, make better use of democracy than the United States does. How have these different electoral systems fared around the world? What sort of outcomes have they produced in terms of turnout? And if you had to pick a country that's really doing it right in terms of seeing the government truly represent the wishes of the voters of that country, is there any specific country you'd point to as one that does it the best? Um, yeah, I think that uh, a country like Germany is, uh, does quite well with its proportional representation system there. It's actually quite interesting because they have, they have a, a hybrid system where they have our single-seat districts, and they combine that with a list of vote for a party, uh, party list voters, it's called. 
And so whatever percentage of the of the overall popular vote a party receives, they're going to get that percentage of the, of seats in the legislative chamber. But some of those representatives are going to represent geographic districts like they do here, and others are going to represent these party lists. So you get kind of a hybrid of uh, representational needs in a sense. One is representing geography and district. The other is uh, representing what you think. You know, voters uh, don't always live in the right district to give to get representation based on what they think, because you just might live in a, you know, if you're a Republican in a Democratic district or vice versa, you're not getting representation. So there you can get representation based on both where you live and what you think. And I think that's a really good system right there. And you do see, um, I mean, look, in many of these countries that have proportional representation, everybody has health care. And and not only that, but we're spending far more of our higher percent of our GDP on health care. We're spending about 18 percent of GDP on health care, which is a huge amount of money. And these countries are spending 10, 11 percent, some of them even less than that. Uh, and and, and they, they have better metrics to show for it. So, you know, that's one policy example you can point to where when you bring everybody to the seat of, of legislative decision making and to the table of legislative decision making, you you can get better policy outcomes where it's a fairer and more uh, broad coverage of people when it comes to things like health care. One of the you know, one of the countries that does this uh, proportional representation system is Israel. And one of the criticisms is, of Israel has been that the governments haven't necessarily been durable. I think over the last four years or so, they've had five different Knesset elections because no coalition a, is able to put in to place a long lasting majority that has any sort of stability. And every time they have these elections, it costs the taxpayers some money. A lot of people point to Israel as sort of a worst-case scenario for what could happen if the United States were to transition to a proportional representation system. Is that uh, Are people right to be fearful of the Israeli example? I, I think that's an understandable example where people would be concerned. Um, but the response is, is really quite simple you can actually fine-tune your proportional democracy deciding how representative you want it to be. Israel has a very extreme form of proportional representation where it uh, takes uh, about 1% of the popular vote to win a seat. And and that's just too low, in my view. And that's what happens. You get this plethora of parties that can't get along. You have a hard time keeping a coalition together. But if you look at other countries around the world, they have a percentage like Germany's is 5%. Others are, are even higher, 6 or 7%. And, and, that, and when you raise it up to that level, you see that you, the voters will have about five or six political parties to pick from. You'll have two parties that are kind of the major parties, uh, though they won't necessarily have a majority. And then you'll have three or four uh, smaller parties, in w- which voters will, will have a choice. And, and so you have both the political center and the political margins represented, but you aren't getting out there to the extremes. because And, and now that some people might think, well, 5%, that seems really low, too. But it's actually kind of hard to get 5% of the vote, uh, and that, the, the experience of many countries bears that out. So it, you can, you can fine-tune how representative you want it to be, if you will, by increasing that threshold. And maybe in the United States we would have a higher threshold of 10%. Um, you know, some have people have talked about that the optimal system in the U.S. would be 
uh, districts where you have five to seven votes, which means you're going to need anywhere from 15 to, to you know, 10 percent of the vote to win one of these seats. And, and that would really give voters a range of choice, but not make it so destabilizing that you have coalitions that can't hold together. Last question, Stephen. I, whenever I talk about ranked choice voting or proportional representation, I hear from a lot of our listeners, okay, that sounds good in theory, but it's just too complicated. The simplest process is to just let people go to the polls and vote, and whomever gets the most votes, that person should be the winner. When we're talking about ranked choice voting, is it a system that's too complicated for the average voter? Do we risk alienating voters by pushing for a system like that? No, I don't think so. I mean, Frank, you know, if you think about it, the rules for um, for professional baseball and football, basketball, they're far more complicated than what we're talking about here for elections, where, you know, a voter, your task is just go in and rank your favorite candidates. One, two, three. It's, it's no, no uh, harder than that. It's like ranking your favorite flavors of pizza or your favorite ice cream flavors. Uh, it's really no different than that. I, I mean, and then the the rules are just, you know, still highest vote getter wins with ranked choice voting, uh, but the winner's going to have to have a majority of the vote instead of having someone winning with 35 or 40 percent of the vote, like it's like happened in, in various elections um, in the U.S. You know, they, for the longest time, the, the governor of Maine uh, didn't, never had a majority of the vote. And when you look at it, you can see actually the, uh, the, the one who was winning with 38 percent of the vote wasn't the, the candidate preferred by the most voters in that election, but there were so many candidates in the race that the rest of the candidates split the majority mm. vote, and so the the wrong candidate was winning. So, you know, something like this isn't hard for voters. It's just um, once they understand, okay, I'm ranking now. There, there's At this point, ranked choice voting is used in over 60 cities. It's used in the state of Alaska, the state of Maine, many other places. And there's enough evidence out there, enough studies that have occurred showing that once you let voters know ranking, voters pick it up and, and, and they actually like it. They, they feel liberated because now they have more choice. They're not stuck picking the lesser of two evils anymore. Stephen Hill, great conversation. I appreciate the, uh, the time very much. I want to encourage people to check out your books, 10 Steps to Repair American Democracy and Fixing Elections, the Failure of America's Winner-Take-All Politics. I hope we can talk again soon. Hey, Frank, if I could just say real quick, we also have um, a, a new online magazine called Democracy SOS, in which we discuss a lot of these things, a lot of guest authors and myself writing about these things. So some of your listeners might enjoy tuning into Democracy SOS. I will check it out myself and hope a lot of listeners do as well. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 